0: Okay, and welcome to the first UCL lunch hour lecture of 2022. Uh, My name is Jeff Howard. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at UCL and it's my honor to host uh, today's session. Um, Today we have Dr. Brian Kloss coming to speak about his new book, Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. Now, Brian is an associate professor of global politics here at UCL. He's also a columnist for the Washington Post. He's the host of the award-winning Power Corrupts podcast, and he has an extensive background conducting field research across the globe, interviewing despots, CEOs, torture victims, dissidents, criminals, and everyday power abusers. He's advised major politicians and organizations, including NATO, the European Union, Amnesty International, and many others. Now, as I've mentioned, Brian will today talk about his recent book publication. This is a book that draws on over 500 interviews with some of the world's top leaders, including presidents and philanthropists, as well as rebels, cult leaders, dictators, you name it, he's talked to them. Combining those interviews with the latest social science and scientific research, Brian's book Corruptible explains why the phrase power corrupts is just the tip of a far more complex iceberg. Now I've personally read the book and I can assure you it's extremely compelling and entertaining, uh, but you don't need to take my word for it. Historian and journalist Max Boot called it the Freakonomics of political science. Princeton's Eddie Gloud called it an extraordinary interrogation of the workings of power. And former chess champion and democracy activist, Garry Kasparov, summed it up nicely when he called the book, a GPS system for navigating a world increasingly full of illiberal democracies, modernized dictatorships and populists who care only for power. And so it's a real treat for us to have Brian joining us today to talk about his book. Before we begin, I wanted to let you know that we will have time at the end for questions, and that these can be submitted at any point during the talk by going to Slido. Uh, you just go to your browser and type in SLI.DO, Slido. And if you enter the event code hashtag UCLCLASS, K L A A S, that'll be the way to access um, the questions. So again, just go to Slido, SLI.DO, and enter the event code hashtag UCLCLASS. Uh, where Klaas is spelt K-L-A-A-S. So those tuning in to YouTube uh, can go and do that. Enter your questions at any point during the talk or at the very end. I can remind you at the end of, of how to do that. Um, but without further ado, um, we're going to bring in Brian Klaas uh, to spend just over half an hour telling us about his book, uh, and then we can open it up to discussion. Brian, hi, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. It's a uh... Pleasure to be here for uh, this first event of 2022 to talk about uh, Corruptible, which has been the most interesting thing I've worked on in in my career. Um, As Jeff said, I spoke to about 500 people across the world, many different countries, uh, many of them bad people, uh, all of them very good at getting into power and uh, wielding it often unjustly, unfortunately. The book is trying to look at power in a sort of 360 degree view. What, you know, who gets it? Why do they get it? How does it change people? And how, how can we get better people into power? So I'll talk through this with a slide deck that I've prepared. And at the end, there'll be plenty of time for questions, I hope. Okay, so the first thing to start with is that this, this illustration, by the way, is from a, a piece that I had in the Sunday Times uh, this past Sunday. And it refers to this idea of one of my favorite authors, Douglas Adams, who writes about this mystical world in which... The humans are ruled by lizards and the humans hate and outnumber the lizards and yet they continually vote for them. And the reason they vote for them when they're asked is because they say, well, if we didn't vote for a lizard then the wrong lizard might get in. And the idea here is that of course, you know we have often this complaint in our modern societies. Why is it that all of my friends and family members are good and decent people who you know, behave with integrity? And yet the people, as I look up of power in politics and business and sport seem to behave badly so often. And the book is looking at some of the questions related to that. It deals with four main questions, four main topics. The first is, do worse people get into power? The second is, does power make people worse? Does power corrupt? To use the aphorism that's often quoted. Third, why do we let people control us who clearly have no business being in control? And how can we ensure that incorruptible people get into power instead? How can we fix the system? Now, I'm going to try to cover the entirety of a book in the span of 35, 40 minutes. So in a way, I'm not going to answer all of these questions comprehensively. You get what the British often call the lucky dip, which is sort of a random assortment of various aspects of the book uh, and try to understand some of the phenomena. It's a very complex and uh, and interesting field of research, but it's one where I can't possibly cover all of it uh, in, in this short time. The first thing I wanted to start with is this story from World War II, and a Abraham Wald. So Abraham Wald was the statistician who has brought a problem from the generals in the uh, in, effectively in the U.S. Air Force, U.S. U.S. military, and they said to him, "Look, we've got all these planes that are coming back from runs in Germany, and they have bullet holes in them, and the the, the red dots show you where the bullet holes were." So. If you have these bullet holes, and if you're dealing with this uh, this sort of destruction of these planes, they asked the statistician where should we reinforce the plane? And you know, you look at this and you see all these bullet holes in the wings, in the tail, in the fuselage, etc. And as soon as people looked at this, they had all these hypotheses. You know, we should reinforce the wings, or the tail, or or the middle of the plane based on where the dots were. And what Abraham Wald did immediately was he said. Those are the only places of the plane that you shouldn't reinforce, because those are the places where when the plane gets shot there, it makes it back to the airbase where you're actually observing it. All of the that got shot in the engine or those, those are flames in Germany somewhere. And what he was describing is this phenomenon as survivorship bias, basically where we start to see what has survived. And there's an insight here that I think is crucially important for power. We're analyzing those in power, just the tip of the iceberg. The people who made it, the people who sought power, got into power and held power. And that trifecta is actually quite rare. It's something you don't know. You can't always imagine that everybody, all possible power holders are represented in the people who are actually in parliament or in CEOs or in other aspects of business. And so, when you think about this, you have to remember that the invisible planes, the ones that were in Germany, the ones that were the flaming wrecks that didn't survive that we can't observe now, those are like the people who never sought power, never wanted, never got into power. It's worth understanding that dynamic uh, in the, in the in understanding how power operates. Now there's a question that we have to ask ourselves, which is, is power seeking, is being power hungry something that is a genetic trait. Are people who are power hungry more likely to seek and obtain power in the first place? And what I tried to do in this book was try to combine various aspects of research in which you could look into you know, the genetic research of it and also talk to people who are the offspring of extremely powerful people. So I'll tell you one quick story about the woman on the left here. Her name is Marie-France Bocasa. And Marie-France Bocasa is somebody who, Basically, she was a, uh, the daughter of a, a cannibalistic dictator, a man who is pictured here on the right named Jean Bédel Bokassa, And she was someone who effectively grew up in the shadow of a palace who power and spent a significant portion of the Central African Republic's budget on trying to uh, give himself a massive coronation, the trappings of power and to consolidate power. And he also fed his enemies to crocodiles a horrible horrible thing that he did and also allegedly engaged in cannibalism now as he was uh, in- involved in this process he gave birth to quite a lot of people one of whom was marie france picasso the woman pictured on the left i met her in paris and we we had a glass of wine together and i asked her you know about what it's like to inherit the genes of this person who is widely regarded as one of history's worst monsters and of course you know what she said to me surprised me. It wasn't that she wanted to change her name. It was that she res- she, she found that the name Bacasa commanded respect, that there was reasons to be proud of her heritage and her background. And when I asked her if she was planning to run for office at any time in the future, she said to me that line that politicians always, say when they're in office, is can't. And what I think is particularly notable here is that when we look at the animal kingdom, there are genetic inheritances of power, uh, power-seeking behavior. We see this in hyenas and zebrafish and other animals. And you can even knock out genes in mice that make them either super submissive or super dominant, depending on uh, the type of mouse and the type of genes you're knocking out. So it's reasonable to conclude that there is a genetic basis in power-seeking. And indeed, scientists, including scientists at University College London, have identified what can be described as a leadership gene, a gene that is highly correlated with obtaining power, becoming a leader. And what's fascinating about this is that we can't necessarily disentangle whether the people who have that gene are more likely to seek power or more likely to get power. And those are not the same thing. It just shows up that they end up in power more. So we definitely have genetic evidence that people who end up in leadership positions have slightly different genomes from the rest, but that We can't really determine whether it's because they seek power more, they're power hungry, or because they're just really good at getting into power, either by being extroverted or affable or psychopathic or whatever it is. So we have sort of a mixed bag at the end of the day still. And that's that's related to, as I talk about extensively in the book, this idea of certain people are drawn like moths to a flame towards power. And, And that's something that creates massive skews where lots of people don't want it at all and they don't try to get it. So the genome tells us a mixed story, right? It tells us a story of people who end up in power, but maybe it's because they seek it. Maybe it's because they're better at getting it. We can't, we can't tell, say for sure. What we can say is that systems matter. And this is where the political science in me comes in and says, you have this innate human trait of certain people who are going to self-select into power. They're going to seek it and they're going to be obsessed by it. They're going to always want and covet power. The systems will amplify that tendency make it more attractive and easier for those people to get into power, or they'll deter those people from seeking power or block them from obtaining power in those systems. And that's where I started to look into the police, because this is not just a book about politics and leaders in in business. It's also about everyday power holders, including police officers. So I looked at how police are recruited around the world. How do you get that self-selection effect? Who ends up applying to be a police officer? And one of the things that I found quite striking is from this clip here, this is from a video in Doraville, Georgia, trying to recruit for police officers. And this still image is the image of the Punisher, the logo of the Punisher, a sort of anti-hero comic book character who is known as a vigilante of justice, who often catches criminals and then tortures them to exact his revenge. This is the opening to a video to recruit police officers in a small town called Doraville, Georgia, just outside of Atlanta already you're starting with something quite distinct. Now, the next video here, sorry, let me, next video here, which is uh, the SWAT video from this Doraville recruitment aspect where you're looking at it and you're seeing that the Doraville Police Department actually owns a tank. (laughs) They're a small town police department, 10,000 people, and they have a tank. Now you've got this first two combinations, right? You've got the Punisher, then you have the driving of a tank in a SWAT vehicle. And inevitably what you can think about is who applies to a job for which the image portrayal of it involves people in ultimately military fatigues, the people who get out in this video are dressed like soldiers, to patrol their local town. And the answer, of course, is that if you are a public minded person who just wants to serve your community, you're going to be repelled from applying for the Doraville Police Department. And that's, of course, what ends up happening. It's part of the reason why in the U.S., for example, rates of domestic abuse massively in police departments than in the general public. And I think it's worth understanding that the self-selection effect can be amplified by videos like this that try to cater to certain people. Now, New Zealand understood this tendency of certain people to gravitate towards the badge and the uniform. As the London Metropolitan Police uh, former person who was in charge of recruitment and, and HR issues for the London Metropolitan Police told me, you know, if you're a bigot or a bully, the idea of policing people in a uniform, potentially with a gun, is very attractive. So what New Zealand did was they said, how can we stop that? We don't want those people. We want people who want to serve the public, not people who want to bully others with a badge and a gun. So New Zealand spent a lot of money on developing recruitment videos that portray policing completely differently. There's a lot of ethnic diversity and uh, gender diversity in their videos. You can see here, there's a video in which this is a person from the Maori indigenous community, which is underrepresented in the police, being depicted as helping somebody cross the completely different from the tank and the Punisher. And then you have, at the end, they're chasing this unseen criminal who turns out to be a border collie that has stolen a woman's handbag. And that's the ultimate criminal that they're chasing down throughout this two-minute suspenseful recruitment video. Now, in place of the Punisher logo, it says, do you care enough to be a cop, right? And the point here is that by depicting policing this way, they had a radically different profile of person end up, arriving into the uh, the sort of public uh, public facing role of becoming a police officer. They had a different demographic group. They had more women, more ethnic minorities, and a lot of different kinds of people personality-wise who normally wouldn't be drawn to policing threw their hat in the ring. And the empirical data is quite clear on this. It All it took was portraying policing in a different light. And this is one of the key, uh, key insights that I think comes out in the book is that while there are, human tendencies to for the wrong reasons, especially under power-hungry individuals, you can counteract that if you carefully design systems that try specifically to attract people who find power to be a calling to service rather than a way to control and abuse other people. And often that simple solution can yield quite profound results. And yet, most organizations don't think this through. Most organizations uh, operate on autopilot, Political parties wait for people to apply to be candidates, and that amplifies the self-selection effect that provides effectively a ramp for the worst among us to enter uh, positions of extreme power. Now, I said before the systems matter. There's another study in the book that I think is crucially important for understanding how this actually operates to back this up with more empirical evidence. And what happened in this study, I've got dice on the screen, economists decided to have a study in which students were asked to roll a dice 42 times. But every time they rolled a six, they would be given amount of money. The sixes you got, the more money you got. Now, what was interesting about this is the students were able to self-report their scores. They could say, I got four sixes, or I got 12 sixes, or as one student in India put it, I got 42 sixes in a row. Now, the, the students who self-reported uh, would be caught out if they lied by statistical methods, because you can, you can have a pretty high confidence level that if somebody says 40 out of 42 times, I roll the six, that they're lying. So what, this, what the economists did was they took a measure of how likely it was that an individual student was lying, and then they asked them about their career ambitions. And what what happened was in India, where the civil service is notoriously corrupt and full of people who extract bribes, there was a massive correlation between people who lied about their dice rolls and people who wanted to become bribe-extracting bureaucrats, people who wanted to end up in a world where they could basically shake people down for cash. When they redid the study, exactly the same method, in where the civil service is notoriously clean exactly the opposite results. The people who were extremely honest about their dice rolls, those were the people who gravitated towards civil service positions. And the lesson here is quite simple, but also very profound. Rotten systems attract rotten people and good systems attract good people. And so one of the main arguments in the book is that yes, there are human nature aspects of power seeking. There's also, as I'll talk about in a second, certain kinds of people, psychopaths, for example, who are particularly drawn to power, but if you design a system in an elegant way and you make sure that the system is squeaky clean and there's lots of accountability in it, you will counteract some of those tendencies for the worst among us to self-select into power and to be obsessed by rising to the top. Now, as I said before, there are personality traits that make you more or less likely to seek power. And one of the ones that is power seeking on steroids is something that psychologists call the dark triad. The dark triad combines, you might expect, Characteristics: one is psychopathy, being a psychopath; one is Machiavellianism, or sort of the ends justifies the means. However, you can get into power makes sense, and the third is narcissism, this sort of ego-driven, power-hungry aspect to certain personalities. Now, many of us have bits of this, right? All of us are somewhat narcissistic in certain contexts. All of us can be a little bit Machiavellian, and dare I say? We can occasionally exhibit traits that are you know, in line with psychopaths, but all in very modest amounts. People who are in, 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 in this kind of psychological world characterized as having the actual dark triad in spades, they have all three dialed up to the extremes. They have lots and lots of these traits, and these people are obsessed by power. All of the evidence suggests that they're disproportionately power hungry, but they're also disproportionately good at getting power. And one of the reasons for this is because of the way that we design the systems that determine who ends up getting promoted or who gets a job or who ends up getting elected. What I mean by that is in our modern society are extremely performative. They require you to put on a performance that convinces people that you're likable, affable, somebody who should be trusted over a short period of time. Now with psychopaths, for example, those people are very, very good at something called superficial charm which is making people like them, at least in small doses. The job interview, the promotion interview, the election is the perfect venue for them to shine. You also have narcissists who are more attuned to what other people think of them because they're so ego-driven and therefore are often very good at presenting themselves well. So what's actually happened in modern societies? is we've designed systems that cater disproportionately well for people who are ultimately dysfunctional. And one of the lessons that psychopath experts told me is that the dysfunctional psychopaths, the ones who can't control the dials of psychopathy and Machiavellianism and narcissism, have them turn up all the time, those people are the serial killers that you've heard about. The people who can dial them down when they need to make people like them, those people are often at the high echelons of business and politics and so on. And the data shows this too, depending on the study that you look at psychopaths are either four times or up to a hundred times more represented in leadership positions than they are in the average public. So you have a massive skew uh, that has unfortunately meant that some of the worst among us, those who are least able to wield power justly are most likely to obtain it. This also is one of those things where I think we have to think about ourselves, turn the mirror onto ourselves and think, could we all behave badly in the right situation? Is there sort of an inner demon within all of us in which in the right context, the right system, we could mimic the behavior of some of these people who have dysfunctional brains, the dark triad, or are we all sort of fixed? Are we automatically angels or demons to begin with? And, and one of the ways that about answering this question, we understand the deep psychology uh, that underlies why we pick strong man leaders, why we gravitate towards certain people and why we decide that someone is fit to govern us and someone else is not. Now, Vladimir Putin, as you will have seen these photos most likely, loves to depict himself shirtless in a variety of different photo shoots to show that he is the strong charismatic leader. Here he is with a gun, I'll leave it on the horse one. So the, the, the reason for this is actually, I think quite surprising, which is comes from, it comes from a field known as evolutionary psychology. And what evolutionary psychology basically argues is that there are templates in our brains that are used to determine who should lead us. And those templates have not fundamentally changed for the better part of between 50,000 and 100,000 years. And the reason for that is because our brains haven't had time to actually evolve much during that period. So we basically have brain structure, brain chemistry as somebody who lived 50,000 years ago. The problem is our societies have massively changed. So 50,000 years ago, it might have been adaptive during a crisis, for example, to turn to a physically large male who was effectively good at fighting off a rival band of warriors, or who might be able to provide decisive, powerful leadership during a acute crisis. And so one of the things that psychologists have been able to replicate in the modern era is that when they ask people to choose a leader, some of them will gravitate towards a physically strong person, but it's a muted effect. When they say that the environment in which you're picking the leader is in a moment of crisis because of a famine or a war or, dare I say, a pandemic, the selection then gravitates towards physically bigger, physically taller men in those instances, and those studies are replicable. And this, interestingly, only appears to have an effect for male leaders. It doesn't seem to affect females, which was Characteristic that was lost, apparently, on this woman, whose name is Hajnal Bam, an Australian politician who read this research and decided to get her legs broken and stretched by three inches in an attempt to increase her odds of getting elected, uh, despite not understanding that this finding seems to only have applied to, to male leaders. Uh, she did win her election, but I don't think it was because uh, her legs were three inches longer than they were before. I also want to talk about systems and how they change Uh, behavior based on the sort of dynamic or the rules that are around people. I'm gonna briefly talk about bees, which was something I hadn't studied previously in my role as a political scientist, but I found fascinating. The short version of the story is that there are two kinds of bees that are very similar, but have different kinds of hives. And one hive has a system in which the hive capsules are basically open and able to be viewed by any passing bees that are inspecting them, known as police bees, And another type of hive has them closed off. And the reason that matters is because a lot of these worker bees would like to end up producing a queen to pass on their genetic material, but it's actually bad for the hive if they do so, because there can only be one queen in each individual hive. What's fascinating about this is that the hive design, the one that provides the easily inspected cells is one in which there's a lot less basically, uh, attempts to make excess queens because they know they can't get away with it. The the police bees are going to determine that an excess queen has been laid and they're going to effectively kill it. Whereas in the place where it's, it's not easily visible for the police bees to inspect them, the police bees actually end up not able to deter this behavior. And so you have much more rates of excess queens in those bees. Now, I use this as an analogy to say, effectively, if you end up in a system for which bad incentives basically enable you to behave badly with ability. The, the odds that you're going to have more people behaving badly are significantly higher. So it's a mix, right? We have all these different aspects of psychology, we have systems, we have deterrence. we have accountability, and all of them add up to uh, this outcome that we currently have of lots of bad people in power doing bad things. So. One unexpected way that I show this insight in the book and probably the weirdest thing I did in my my research, one of the weirdest things certainly, was I took a ski lesson in Vermont with this man whose name is Paul Bremer. And Paul Bremer uh, ran Iraq as part of the Coalition Provisional Authority in 2003. He was put in charge by George W. Bush to run Iraq after the invasion. He's now uh, retired and works as a ski instructor in Vermont. So I flew out and I interviewed him there. And what was fascinating about this was that Bremer basically said to me, look, you know, I inherited a dictatorship. I didn't have the system that I wanted to have. And Bremer previously was someone who had served as an ambassador to Norway with distinction. Nothing he had done was scrutinized as having been wrong or abusive or anything like that. He had a sterling record. He ends up inheriting a dictatorship, living in the palace of the Hussein Sons, ends up with a bounty of 10,000 grams of gold put on his head by Osama bin Laden, which I think is a first for a Vermont ski instructor, and is in this position where he basically decides, you know, uh, early on in his tenure as the viceroy of Iraq, to contemplate shooting people who are looting uh, during the post-invasion breakdown of security as a way to send a message that the, the U.S. government is serious about security. Now, it, it makes my skin crawl to think about the idea of shooting people who are just stealing you know, TVs or food or whatever it is. But what Bremer said to me that I think is worth considering is he said, look, when I was in Norway, I never in a million years would have even contemplated this idea. It is a broken system in which Order was, in, was enforced by the barrel of a gun. Now, that doesn't make it right, but it does provide an insight that Bremer, the same exact person in two different contexts, starts behaving differently. And I think this is a crucial aspect of, of my argument is that we are much more malleable than we like to think. We're not all good or bad people, and systems and context and constraints dramatically shape our behavior, which means that we actually can make people in power behave better because they're not innately necessarily good or bad. Some of the people with the dark triad, by the way, are probably unsalvageable. And the only thing you can do is try to keep them away from power. Other people are absolutely salvageable in the right circumstances and a good system can produce the best in us. Now, I've got two things that I wanted to talk about in terms of policing before I wrap things up in a moment. One is, that there is also a a sort of uh, interesting study, another fascinating study in the book about how much accountability matters for leadership. And this involves study of parking tickets at the United Nations. So when you think about uh, why people behave badly, there's maybe perhaps one explanation is, oh, they're they're a bad person or they come from a bad culture. In the United Nations diplomats and people who worked for uh, embassies have what's called diplomatic immunity. So they are not subject to normal fines for parking tickets. And as a result of this immunity, these diplomats effectively racked up 150,000 parking tickets to the tune of $18 million over the span of many years. At one point, the New York mayor decided to crack down on this and to start impounding cars that had multiple parking tickets. So you end up with this natural experiment where you have a pre-enforcement period in which the diplomats can get away with everything and a post-enforcement period in which, in which they can get away with nothing. And what's fascinating about this is that you have a situation in which you have basically in the pre-enforcement period, what you expect is what the diplomats from and Japan and Germany are all parking legally the way that they would back home. And the diplomats from more corrupt cultures, Yemen and Egypt and so on, are racking up sometimes 200 parking tickets on average per diplomat. As soon as the enforcement comes in, as soon as the sort of accountability measure is introduced, it changes overnight and the Egyptians and the Yemenis start parking like the Japanese, the Norwegians, the Germans, and so on. And that produces this insight that accountability really does change behavior. But also fascinatingly, the Japanese and Norwegians and Germans, the longer they could get away with it, the longer they were in New York, the more they started parking illegally. So you have this aspect of this complexity of cultures matter, individual behavior matters, but so does accountability. And that mix of, of sort of dynamics accounts for why you have people in power. I I think sometimes behaving badly and sometimes behaving with virtue. Another instance that I I wanted to briefly tackle is this no power corrupts. And I'm only going to briefly talk about this in, in two instances of interviews that I conducted. This is me uh, several years ago, conducting an interview with a guy named Paul, uh, sorry, a guy named Mark Ravalomanana, who is the former president uh, of Madagascar. Basically, this is a, a situation in which Mark Ravalomanana grew up and was you know, by all accounts going to be a reformer, a breath of fresh air. And as he was in power, the longer he maintained his position, the more corrupt he got. Uh, And ultimately, he was brought down in a corruption scandal uh, in a coup d'etat in 2009. Interestingly, by A 34 34 year old radio disc jockey who unseated him. But Mark Ravalomanana was this person who's a classic case of that Lord Acton aphorism power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And another person I discuss in the book is this woman, Ma Anand Sheila. You'll have encountered her if you've seen the Netflix documentary Wild, Wild Country. But she's an an amazing case study of someone who enters the, the sort of echelons of power alongside of a cult leader, a man named Bhagwan Rajnish, and starts to have her ethical principles completely eroded to the this, to this scale that she ends up poisoning or helping to orchestrate the poisoning of a thousand people with salmonella in rural Oregon in the mid-1980s. Also attempts to basically plot multiple assassinations and uh, ends up in prison, and deported. And these case studies are fascinating because they're real life examples of that saying that all of us seem to intuit that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And what I outline in the book is why that happens, right? Power actually changes your brain chemistry as I talk about in one of the chapters, but it also changes your psychology. And there's a few reasons for this that I perhaps can talk about more in the Q&A, but one of them, a very simple one, is your mind gets warped if you're in a powerful position just by lived experience. I mean, Ma Anand, Sheila was effectively treated as the voice of a god, a semi-demigod on earth. I mean, it produces a very strange psychology for people or as one former presidential candidate in the US told me when I interviewed him, that you know it's really weird when you walk into a room and everybody stands up and applauds you and always laughs at your jokes. It creates a dynamic that affects your thinking. And so there is actually empirical evidence psychologists have demonstrated this, showing that power does indeed corrupt. But as I think I've hopefully shown, it's just one small part of the dynamics around who seeks power, who gets it, uh, and how it changes people. This is Ma Sheila, by the way, today. And this is the other fascinating aspect about her, is after she was deported for serving four years in prison, and she is still to this day the worst bioterrorist in American history, I flew to Switzerland to meet her and to interview her. And She is in charge of, believe it or not, a care home for people with mental illness and was given this charge by the Swiss government, and has had no indications of any sort of abuse of power or any sort of inappropriate behavior ever since. And this is somebody who, when she wielded power, tried to assassinate public figures and successfully orchestrated the poisoning of a thousand people in rural Oregon. So, you know, it's one of these amazing stories that shows how power can really change uh, how people behave. Now, how do we fix this all? I've just got two quick uh, things that I want to talk about, and then we can talk about it more in the Q&A. Both of these are going to talk about the power of randomness. I have 10 different insights in the book, principles that I think can make systems better, get us better people in charge of us. But two of them uh, rely on randomness. One of them is this concept developed by the New York Police Department and used by police departments around the world now called integrity testing. So basically what happens with integrity testing is police officers end up in a position where they believe that they have stumbled upon a drugs bust with perhaps quite a lot of cash on the table, maybe some drugs on the table. And what they don't know is that it's been staged and that there are microphones and cameras filming them. And if they pocket, let's say there's $20,000 in cash on the table, if they pocket $6,000 and then report $14,000, they are either fired or arrested depending on the severity of the offense. Now, what's fascinating about this is that when the NYPD initiated this pilot, they did 500 different integrity tests. But when they surveyed police officers in the New York Police Department, 12,000 cops said that they had been subject to an integrity test, which meant 11,500 people in the police force had actually encountered situations that they thought was a setup, but turned out to be a real crime scene. What was interesting about this is as a result of that randomization of the stings, It meant that all of those 12,000, both the 500 real cops who had been subject to the integrity test and the 11,500 who mistakenly thought they were, they ended up in a position where they all thought that they were being tested. So they all behaved better. It created random, basically surveillance that for people in positions of power end up uh, worrying more about, uh, you know, whether they're going to be watched, whether they're going to be caught and it creates better behavior. So randomized accountability can be quite a powerful tool for those on on the top of our societies or those with the most propensity to abuse us. Another proposal that I wanted to leave you with before we get into questions, is the idea of random oversight. Now, in ancient Greece, there was this device known as the claritarian, which effectively randomly allocated citizens to something called the citizens' assembly that made decisions about what the public would be governed with, the the rules, the laws of society. It was like jury duty, but for government. Now, this idea in modern political science is known as sortition. And I don't think sortition is actually a very good idea for determining the composition of our parliaments or our Congresses, because I think modern politics is so complex that you need to have a real understanding of dynamics and expertise to do things like negotiate a nuclear test ban treaty. It's probably not gonna be a good idea to have uh, randomly allocated people dealing with some of these extremely complex problems. But I do think for oversight, it could be extremely useful. So I propose in the book, a randomly allocated shadow parliament or shadow congress for example a shadow board in business that randomly picks people either from the employee base if it's a business or from the general public if it's a government that debates and decides upon the same questions as the actual parliament actual congress actual board of directors of a company but is non-binding now the reason for this is because anytime a politician who's power hungry is doing something out of greed Or because a lobbyist told them to or in the uk for example where you have chumocracy and you're giving contracts to friends the shadow government wouldn't do that the randomly allocated citizens would come up with a different solution to a problem and it would expose the gulf between the motivations of power hungry politicians and the randomly allocated public so i think this is one other way of a sort of creative outside the box element of social engineering where you could build a better system that holds those in power more to account just using the power of randomness. Now, there's so much more that I could talk about, but I hope that you've gotten a sense of the core ideas of the book, which effectively are that power-hungry people are going to gravitate towards power no matter what. It's up to us to design systems that deter them from seeking power and stop them from obtaining it. And then trying to actively seek out people who don't want power and try to put them into positions of authority instead, because it's very likely that they would be best at wielding it. So the book is a mix of psychology, political science, behavioral economics, evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology, et cetera. And it's all trying to answer this fundamental question of who gets power and how does it change us? So with that, I'll turn things back over to Jeff who can ask questions. And I I believe he's got some coming in on Slido as well.
0: Great, thanks so much, Brian. That was terrific. Um, we do have a great list of questions coming in. Again, if you wanna ask questions, just go to sli.do, S-L-I dot D-O and put in the hashtag UCL class. that's U-C-L-K-L-A-A-S and you can uh, either upvote particular questions you like or you can add your own question. Uh, and we have some great questions here. I'm gonna start out with one uh, coming in from someone named Kevin. Uh, Kevin asks, you say good institutions attract good people. Since change is usually controlled by those already in power, aren't we doomed to the same sort of leaders forever? What do you think about that, Brian?
1: Yeah, this is this is a tricky question because of course this is the problem that reform requires people to often uh, produce outcomes that would vote themselves out of a job or put themselves out of a job. This is why I think we need things like shadow parliaments that don't require any sort of, you could, you could make one with, you know, publicly funded, you could do it all sorts of different ways, different NGOs or foundations can produce them. It doesn't require government sanction to do it. And on top of that, I think there's other aspects of oversight, like, for example, I think that sting operations, like the one that I talked about previously, could be used for politics, so you could have for example during the pandemic you could have had journalists who had created uh, a fake business that produces ppe and just glad hands people and you know has the right lobbyists and so on and see if they can get a contract from the government and expose that so you're in this sort of chicken and egg problem or sort of you know cat and mouse game where yes you do need to produce some sort of interventions even if the people in power won't accept them. And you also have to hope that you can elect people who are reformists, right, reformers, and and actually are, no matter what the the, the situation they're in, will actually try to drive an agenda uh, of reform. And it's both, right? You can't just rely on the individual to come and save us. You also have to sort of produce accountability. So there's many different ways you can do this. And some of them, by the way, like regular rotation, uh, rotating partners in police forces is something that doesn't actually get resisted that much by those in the institution because it doesn't really burden them considerably. But actually, has been shown to have massive anti-corruption effects because you collude with more, more often with people who you trust. So if you're if your partner and you are embezzling for the better part of a decade, you're going to continue doing that. Whereas if you rotate your partner every three months that's going to breed a level of potential distrust for collusion. So, you know, the the point I have in the book is there's no one silver bullet. There's 10 different principles I propose. Some of them would require people in power to be on board. Some of them would not. And you need to do many different fronts because this problem is not simplistic. It's not going to be solved by one sort of magic bullet. And uh, if it were, we would have already figured it out by now and had better leaders
0: in charge of us. So here's a related question about term limits. Uh, what do you think the implications of your research are for term limits and, and do you personally favor term limits uh, for members of, of parliament or members of, of congress
1: yeah it's a, it's a really tricky question because there's there's two angles to this political scientists tend to oppose term limits in the literature and the reason for that is because they have shown in some studies that having term limits makes it so there's a lack of accountability because you know you're not going to get reelected, you know you're going to leave power and so you end up cashing in on those uh, final months or years in office when you know you're about to be out anyway. I think at the same time, though, that's partly a, a product, for example, in the U.S., where a lot of this research comes out of, of the particularly pernicious effect of money in politics in, in the system. So I think it's possible to design a system that involves term limits and yet ends up producing better outcomes as long as you limit things like money in politics and the influence of lobbying. Uh, And in that instance, I think the research on rotation is actually quite useful because banks, for example, have rotated staff around, sometimes forcibly, as a way to to basically uh, uncover embezzlement. So they'll say to someone, oh, you've got to take a two-week vacation. And they figure if somebody is cooking the books, you'll figure that out when they go on vacation because all of a sudden they'll be gone for two weeks and the numbers won't uh, add up the same way. So, you know, I think there there are ways to consider this, but it does require some careful attention to things like money and politics and lobbying to ensure that the final term of an elected representative is not the one where they just sort of cash in and set themselves up for a lucrative gig as soon as they leave the halls of power.
0: Great. And one last related question in this in this on this theme. So um, you think we need to solve this through reforms at the systemic level, not the individual level. And I take the person there to be saying it's not good enough that we just encourage people we like to run for public office so that we might do that. It's really important that we have systemic level reforms. Um, but we need the individual reformers to lead those Reform initiatives, and so I, I, I guess the question is: Do you have any insight or guidance for those people in their communities who are interested in leading those kinds of reforms? What on the ground does it actually look like to, to lead those kinds of systemic changes?
1: That's that's a great question, and it is both, right? I mean, we need to change the systems, but we also need better people to seek power. So, I'll speak from from personal experience. The reason I got interested in politics, and I, you know, I end up eventually as a political scientist is partly because my mom ran for the local school board when I was eight years old. And she just wanted to sort of help her community and make a, a bit of a difference. And so she ran for office at the very local level. Now, when she complained about it uh, and, and was saying, here's the difficulties of the job, it was things like you know dealing with a pay dispute, quite banal sort of issues. Occasionally you'd have a parent who was angry that they were teaching evolution in school, whatever. But it wasn't death threats and harassment and crazy people showing up at your door. And that is how local politics looks to a lot of people in 2022, whether it's in Britain or the United States. And so, you know, one of the things I worry about is that we have created a system in which normal low-level leadership even is viewed as unattractive to normal and decent people. They don't wanna become the next generation of school board members. Because, you know, it is quite frankly, it can be dangerous in the United States at the moment. You can face serious death threats. You need police protection at the meetings, uh, which is a a symptom of a a sort of dysfunctional society that we find ourselves in. But I I do think that that's crucial to making sure that ordinary people who want to serve find it appealing rather than repulsive. So that's the first step. The second thing is you actually have to ensure that you proactively seek out people who have already showed integrity and leadership in other fields to go into politics for example you know we don't want to have a system in which you say all right you know step right up if you think you should be the prime minister because that system amplifies that tendency of power hungry people to put themselves forward what you want to do instead is to have parties that devote a lot more resources than they do currently all the way down to the local level of effectively headhunting people who might not have ever considered a run for office might actually find the idea absolutely unattractive, but might be convinced to serve their community. And those people are most likely to behave with integrity because the power in itself is not a reward for them. If the power is a reward in itself, then that means you're going to have people who behave in much more Machiavellian ways to obtain it. So, you know, I think we have to do all of the above. You have to think about the individual. You have to think about about the system. And you also have to think about accountability for those who actually wield power because even the angels among us Can behave in demon like ways after they've obtained power and had power corrupt them. So you don't have one possible solution. You just have to think about all the different uh, levels and mechanisms and work on reforming them. And I will say, by the way, what I'm particularly depressed by in doing this research is how few organizations and how few political systems think about this in a systematic way and try things, right? I mean, the way that we structure our societies and the way we decide who gets into power has not fundamentally changed for decades, and yet all of us gripe about who's in power. I mean, that's the paradox of this, is that we're all unhappy with what ends up being produced, and we're not trying to engineer different systems that propel better people into power, and we should start doing that, in my view.
0: Great. There are a couple questions now about um, your methodology in the book. Um, So one of the questions is, can you please explain a bit more about your process for selecting case studies? Uh, For example, the the story about the Doraville um, Police Department is is really compelling, and how did you go about um, finding and then deciding to talk about those particular case studies?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So what I was trying to do in the book was to, uh, I use anecdotes and some of the stories from my own research, uh, and then I match them up with studies and empirical evidence and so on that is uh, from unrelated fields. Now, when it came to the police, for example, what I tried to do was to start by looking at what is ultimately an outlier, right? The Doraville case is not representative of what every single police department in the US is, though they are far more militarized than other, other countries' police departments. And, and then what I did was I, I, I took this example, this anecdote of here's what it looks like at the extremes. And it's like, you know if you watch the video, you can type into YouTube uh, after this talk, you know Doraville PD recruitment video, you won't believe what you're seeing, it's 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 unbelievable. Death metal music, the Punisher logo, uh, people in military fatigues throwing smoke grenades for the local police department. But I wanted to show what the extreme looked like, and then I turned over to sort of the more representative data. And what the representative data shows is that when the US military, for example, and the US government decided to decommission Some of the uh, military weaponry that was used in Iraq and Afghanistan shortly after the invasions in the early 2000s, rather than junking it, they sold it at very low prices to police departments around the US. So I bring in this sort of extreme example of what the recruitment looks like, and then I talk about the actual overall picture, and I say, look, what's happened is that a lot of these places have absurd levels of militarized equipment, and it's no surprise that they use it. And, of course, there's an empirical study that shows that those departments that most gravitated towards military equipment also had higher levels of violence and higher levels of of, of killing than those that didn't apply for military equipment. So there's a self-selection effect there. One of the examples, by the way, that's hilarious to me, is there's this one township in Indiana that has an amphibious assault vehicle, uh, effectively a military boat, attack craft, that uh, is part of the local police department. The area that they cover has one small pond next to a farmhouse and no other water in its jurisdiction. And yet they have an amphibious assault vehicle. So, you know, this is one of those instances where they've they've come up with the sort of, uh, perfect example of if, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, and so you know that's where I tried to figure out, okay, now what do other countries do? And that's where I looked around and New Zealand seemed to be one that was actually thinking about this carefully. I interviewed people from London's Metropolitan Police as well, but I'm trying to take a sort of multi-methods approach because these questions aren't ones that you can just crunch numbers for. They're also not ones where you can just do interviews. They're not ones that you know, have simplistic answers. So they require multiple angles to attack them. And that's what I tried to do in the book.
0: So a related question just on that point. So you obviously engage with a lot of natural sciences like evolutionary biology in the book, and that's pretty rare for, for political scientists. So why do you think that there is this kind of um, siloing where disciplines don't talk to each other? And what do you think can be learned by doing more of this kind of cross-disciplinary engagement? It's a great
1: question. So. I, I was my eyes were open, to be honest, uh, to how many people are working on questions that were relevant to my work uh, about power and, and you know, power seeking and all these things that aren't political scientists and that, frankly, most political scientists don't read or know exist. Uh, and, and I think it's it's one of those relics of departmental uh, academia in which there's a lot of divides between people who are asking similar questions, but from totally different angles. I mean, the standard political scientist who studies the literature on dictators and despots does not do things like MRI scans to look at brain dysfunction and psychopathy. And I think that's a shame because surely the dictators of the world do not have representative brains of the average population. And so, you know, one of the things that I'm hoping will come out of this book and, and some of the research I do in the future is trying to team up with those people a bit more and trying to think carefully about what insights we can get from human nature and evolutionary biology and anthropology, hunter-gatherers, which I bring in the book, also with the systems research, the economy, you know, economics research, all these things. And I, I wish that there would be research agendas and journals more frequently that had big questions that they were asking. And some of this exists, but you know, Much of the time, the incentives for academics are to publish in their own discipline, uh, the top journal within their discipline, and not speak to people who might have profound insights that just don't happen to be at the same conferences or the same dinners. And and I think that's a, a real shame of how we've set up the aspects of research that we do, because I found this the most intellectually enriching project I've done in my career precisely because of all the stuff I'd read that I'd never come across before by deliberately uh, basically, not reading political science work for most of the book because that's what I know best, and, and actually venturing out into these different subjects.
0: Okay, great. So we, now we have a, just a grab bag of of unrelated questions, and you can have a have a go at at them as they come. Okay, so so one person writes: uh, the book talks about why the the bed and mill, the second in command, may actually be the optimal place for health and well being. Could you elaborate? I think they may have seen it in some some clip about your book.
1: Sure. Yeah, no problem. So this is where I looked at also non-human primates uh, to understand insights into human behavior. And this particular study looks at uh, basically baboons and also uh, other studies that I use that look at CEOs and presidents. So I'll just quickly explain the studies and what, what they show. So... There's a biological stress effect that comes with having power. And the way we know that is by doing these studies that look at genetic aging. So in this process known as DNA methylation, scientists can look at how quickly an individual organism is aging relative to the calendar. And what they found in these troops of baboons that had, you know, very strict hierarchies is that the low baboons in the hierarchy, as you would expect, were stressed. They didn't have access to resources or mates. They were living a precarious existence, and they, as a result, aged quicker than, uh, than the calendar year. Uh, as you went up the hierarchy, that relationship, as you'd expect, improved. So the higher up you got, the better it was for your aging. Except for the alpha male, the alpha male ended up in a position where it was extremely stressful because there was an, always a target on his back, and all these different baboons were plotting to overthrow him. And despite having all the spoils and mates that he wanted, it was actually biologically aging him faster. And we see this actually in human beings as well. There's economics papers that look at CEOs during times of, of crisis in their industry aging significantly faster, and they also look at faces, how, how quickly the face changes, and of course, Of course, we all know about presidents when they enter the White House versus when they leave it. There's empirical evidence that you can find where a study that was done over 200 years and across 17 countries found that the runner up in presidential elections compared to the winner, uh, the the winner died 4.4 years earlier on average than the person who didn't obtain the power. So there's questions about mortality and aging and stress And it leads to the conclusion that perhaps the best thing to be is second in command or as I've sometimes put it uh, in the court, but not the king.
0: Great, so another question we've got is would you say that the type of education someone gets affects the development of their moral compass or how likely they are to be corrupt? Do you think education matters?
1: It's a fascinating, it's a fascinating question. Actually, one of my colleagues at UCL, Thomas Gift, uh, has a paper about this sort of question looking at education of leaders and how it affects them. Uh, What what I think is, is fascinating here is that a lot of the people that I end up interviewing in faraway places that are, you know, former despots and so on. Uh, have been educated in Western academies. And indeed, I talk about in the book how uh, one prime minister, former prime minister that I interviewed, who ended up ultimately being politically responsible for the deaths of 100 uh, people who were killed with live rounds with actual bullets during protests, uh, he went to Eton College and was educated and was friends with Boris Johnson. And so, you know, I think that there's no silver bullet. I think there's no idea that, you know, if you get the right education, you're going to end up with the right sort of system and the right person in charge. But I do think that being put into a world in which there are rules, there is accountability and having that socialization process can certainly help somebody understand what it's like if they come from a society that has much less rule of law, much less accountability and so on. But it's no guarantee. I mean, Aung San Suu Kyi is a great example of this where the hopes of the world were placed upon her. And I think people sort of sainted her in a way that was unjustified. And when she ended up in power, you know, the Rohingya minority uh, in Myanmar suffered dramatically as a result of that. So while education can be enlightening and helpful to people to socialize them politically, it is by no means a panacea that fixes all these problems. It is part of the solution, but not the solution.
0: Great, and I think we have probably have time for, for one more question. Uh, and the question that I'm going to throw to you is what surprised you the most when you were doing your research?
1: What surprised me the most was probably the work on evolutionary biology that I knew very little about, um, and understanding the origins of, of human hierarchy. Uh, I won't give the whole explanation here, but I, I suffice to say that I, I came up with a cringeworthy pun uh, of war and peas, peas the food, to describe the two major uh, drivers of human society moving from a more egalitarian flat Uh, design to a much more hierarchical structure design, warfare and agriculture being two of the primary explanations for this. And much of the, while this is some, somewhat disputed and debated, much of human history had a significantly more egalitarian structure than modern society, and indeed most modern hunter-gatherer societies, the ones that have not incorporated into the modern world, uh, also operate in something that's called a reverse dominance, reverse dominance hierarchy, where they try to enforce egalitarianism among the band, Uh, something completely at odds with our lived experiences, where we all have multiple levels of bosses uh, above us in
0: 2022. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Brian. That's about all the time we have. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for this session. Thanks to Dr. Brian Kloss for coming and talking to us uh, about his new book, uh, Corruptible. You can get it now at all good bookstores. Um, I hope you'll join us uh, next Wednesday, the 26th of January, for the next uh, UCL Lunch Hour Lecture of 2022. Uh, Professor Shirley Gilbert, who's one of the world's foremost experts on music during the Holocaust, will speak on Music on the Brink of Destruction. It's going to be a special event for Holocaust Memorial Day 2022. Hope to see you then. In the meantime, have a great week, everybody. And thanks for joining us.